0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book, 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Hey, good morning, everybody. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been journeying through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're getting towards the end. This week, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 15. So please bow your heads with me as you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are here now by your Spirit, that you want to speak to us. You want to do a work through your Word to transform our hearts and minds and Lord, make us into the people you desire us to be. Lord, we ask that during this time, through your word, you would build our faith. Lord, you would draw us to yourself. And Lord, that you would speak into areas of our lives that need to be addressed. Lord, instruct us and transform us by your word and through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He was one of the most successful and wealthiest people in the world. He highly awarded, praised, even feared by some. He became a billionaire before reaching age 50. But at age 56, Steve Jobs died of pancreatic cancer. And right before he died, this is what Steve Jobs had to say as he reflected on his life from his hospital bed. He said, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, Wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. There is a practice which has become popular in recent years called life planning. Maybe some of you have heard of it. I read a book on it myself and, and implemented some of the principles. With life planning, what they tell you to do is they tell you to look ahead. They say, imagine your funeral. Look ahead and imagine the end of your life and then plan backwards from there. What do you want? people to say about you at your funeral. What kinds of things would you like to have accomplished by the end of your life? What kinds of qualities and characteristics do you want to be known for after you're gone? And then they say, once you've identified those things, then make a plan starting from there and starting from today as to how you're going to get there. How long is it going to take? What are the steps that you need to take in order to get there? And what can you start doing today? There's definitely a lot of wisdom in doing that. But you know what? Here's the thing. What if you had a great plan for your life and you accomplished everything that you set out to do, all your goals, and people remember you in the future as a really great person? What Steve Jobs is telling us from beyond the grave is that no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how good of a person you were, at the end of the day, you won't enjoy any of it because you won't be here. Your life will be over Death is the great equalizer, because as the Bible reminds us, we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of this world. The Bible also tells us this. It says that it is appointed for every person to die once, and then, after that, comes judgment. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Because what it tells us is, of course, on the one hand, it tells us that all of us are going to die, But it also says something else. Did you notice this? It says that there is something that happens after you die. After you die, here's what happens, which means that the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. There are actually things that you experience and that happen after you die. So while there's a lot of wisdom in life planning, the problem with life planning is that it doesn't plan ahead far enough. Because as this verse tells us, the end of your life here on earth isn't going to be the end of you. There's actually something that will happen. There are things which will happen after you die. So how do you plan ahead for that? The Bible tells us that you can actually know what will happen after you die. And you can plan ahead. There are things that you can do in this life which will actually matter for all of eternity. They'll matter beyond this life. There are things that you can do even now which can make a difference for all of eternity. And that's why Paul the Apostle, writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he told him this. He said, Encourage those who are rich in this life to set their hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but instead to store up for themselves a good foundation for the future, meaning their eternal future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, what does that mean? That which is truly life. The life which is truly life. You know what that phrase implies? It implies that this life we're living right now is just a shadow, just a prelude of something greater, which is to come. It means that this life, which we're living right now, is actually something less than the true life, which we have yet to experience, which has yet to be revealed. But notice what it says at the end of that verse. The true life, this greater life, right? The life that is truly life is something which it says must be taken hold of. You must take a hold of it. In other words, taking possession of this greater form of life, this life that is truly life, getting that is not inevitable. It's not given. It's not something that everyone will experience. Only those who take hold of it will have it and get it. So, then, how do you take hold of the life which is truly life? The life which comes after this one, of which this life is merely a shadow and a prelude. How do you prepare for it? How can you make sure that you're investing your time, your energy, your resources into things which have eternal meaning and eternal value? Well, that's what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. The title of today's message is The Defeat of Death and Victory Through the Resurrection. And what we're going to see in this passage is this. Here's our one-sentence summary, our takeaway truth. I would love it if you'd write it down, take a photo, whatever you got to do to take this thought with you as you go today. And it'll also be our outline for studying this passage. Okay, you ready? The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death and it gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. One more time. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death and gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. So we're gonna take that passage and we're gonna break it down into three parts and use it as our outline for studying this text. The first part, the hope of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians is a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. And throughout this letter, Paul has been responding to and instructing them about various issues which had arisen in their church. Some of them were behavioral issues. Others were doctrinal issues. And one of the issues that had arisen in the church that he's addressing here in chapter 15 was a question about whether there really is such a thing as life after death. You see, some of the Christians in Corinth had been influenced by some strands of Greek philosophy and some strands of of Jewish belief systems, which said that there is no such thing as life after death. And so these Corinthian Christians, becoming convinced that there's no life after death, they began to think of Christianity merely in terms of it being a good tool to help you live a better life and to be a better person They would have said Jesus was a good teacher who lived an exemplary life, but then they would have said, and yet when it comes to these issues of life and death and heaven and hell, they would have said there's nothing. When you die, that's it, game over, done. This idea that there's no life after death, it had become popular among some of the Christians there in Corinth. And here in chapter 15 of this letter, Paul the Apostle is writing to say, hang on a second, This absolutely is, there there absolutely is such a thing as life after death. Not only is it something which is taught throughout the Bible, it's something that Jesus himself taught, uh, but also, if there were no life after death, then understand the gospel is meaningless, and the death and life of Jesus were pointless. But the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead is proof that there is indeed life after death. And here in chapter 15, Paul has been explaining what Jesus' resurrection means for us. And what he's been showing us is this, that just as Jesus was resurrected from the grave, so too we who belong to him, though our physical bodies will die— God is going to resurrect us to new and everlasting life with him in the new heavens and new earth that he is going to make where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. It will be what we call heaven. The hope of the resurrection is that in Jesus, there is hope for life beyond the grave. Through him, you can take hold of the life that is truly life. And we saw in the verses we looked at earlier It is appointed for every person to die once, and then after that comes judgment. That was Hebrews 9.27 that we looked at. What that means is that no matter who you are, the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you. All of us, the Bible says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is coming a day when we will have to answer to God for the things that we have done in our lives, and in some cases, the things that we should have done but failed to. That will be the day of judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ already received the judgment for your sins, your transgressions, your failings. He received them in himself on the cross. Jesus, the one who lived a perfect, sinless life, on the day of judgment, he's the only one who would have nothing to worry about. And yet on the cross, he chose to take your place Receive the judgment that you deserve for the ways that you've fallen short. And Jesus did this as God in order to reconcile you to himself by removing the barrier that existed between you and him by taking the judgment upon himself. It's his gift to you because he loves you. And as you receive this gift by faith in what he did for you, then you're forgiven, you're reconciled to God, and you receive the hope of the resurrection, which is eternal life with God in heaven. And the reason you can be sure that this will really happen is because Jesus resurrected. He's the first fruits of those resurrected to eternal life. But then look what it says in verse 35. That's where we pick up. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? What Paul's doing here is he's, um, he's addressing some of the questions and objections that people tended to have when it came to this topic of the resurrection, right? Some people would ask these questions thinking that these questions, in a way, debunked the idea of the resurrection or proved that it couldn't be plausible. So, so for example, some people would say, how is it even possible? How is it scientifically possible that someone who is dead would be raised up back to life. The other question is what kind of body will they have if they are raised? These, uh, those people who asked these kinds of questions, they essentially thought that these questions were the Achilles' heel in the idea of the resurrection of the dead and of life after death. They thought these questions proved that there couldn't be such a thing as resurrection and eternal life. After all, who would want to live forever in a body that was halfway decomposed, right? Or, or a body that a child who died as an infant, why would they want to be raised and, and live for eternity in that infant body? Or, or let's say somebody who, uh, who had a disability. Why would they want to go on forever living in that state? It would be terrible, in some cases even grotesque. But Paul responds to these objections starting in verse 36. And here's what he says at the beginning of verse 36. You foolish person. If you read this in the original text, it's much more emphatic. He says basically, you fool. These are stupid questions is what he's saying. People thought that these were slam dunk arguments that disproved the idea of the resurrection and eternal life, but Paul says, no. These are not slam dunk arguments. These are cheap, worthless, foolish arguments. First of all, the question of how it can be possible for God to raise the dead are you serious? He's God. That's the kind of thing that he can do, right? It's answered by the fact that God can do anything. I love what Paul the Apostle said when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 8. He said, why would it be thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why would you find that even incredible? Remember, the difficulty of any action is measured by the ability of the one performing that action. So for example, there are things which you can do which it would be impossible for a small child to do. But for you, it's not even difficult because of your superior strength and ability. It would be impossible for me to lift a train car up in the air, and yet there are machines that do it all day long. They lift train cars up in the air at the train yard. In the same way, if God is all-powerful and God created all things out of nothing, then not only would it not be impossible for God to raise the dead, it wouldn't even be difficult And do you realize that that same principle applies when it comes to your life as well? There are things in your life which may seem impossible or insurmountable, too difficult for you. They might be impossible, but you realize that for God, not only are they not impossible, they're not even difficult. And so in whatever situation you're facing today, you can bring that situation before the Lord, knowing that with Him, nothing is impossible. He can bring life out of death. And if he can do that, then certainly he has the ability to work and make a way, even in the most difficult of circumstances and dire of situations. So you can bring your needs and your cares to him in prayer, and you can do so with confidence. Not only is he able to do great things, but you know what else? He is also willing. Not only is he able to do great things, he's also willing. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Look at what it says. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is my favorite part. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, not only is God able, but God is willing he cares. You can bring your needs to him confidently, knowing that not only is he able, but he cares and he is willing. Now maybe some of you, though, you hear that and you would say, wait a second, I have brought my needs before God and he hasn't fixed my situation. Or maybe he hasn't given me yet the thing that I've been asking for or praying for. So if you say that God is able and he is willing, then why hasn't he answered my prayer? So not only is God able, and not only is God willing, but you need to remember this as well. God is also all-knowing. He knows the outcome of every potential course of action, and he is so deeply committed to you that he is working out a plan for your ultimate good. So sometimes you might ask for something, and because of his perfect knowledge and his full love for you, rather than giving you that thing, he might say no. He might say not right now, because you know what we have with God? I think that some people wish that God was a genie. Because you know how a genie works. As long as you say the magic words, the genie is obligated to give you what you want. And I think sometimes we think that. As long as I say the magic words, as long as I do the right things, God will be obligated to give me what I want. But you know what we have with God? We have with God not a, not a genie in a bottle, but a father in heaven. Not a genie in a bottle, but a father in heaven. The difference between a genie and a father, a genie is obligated to give you what you want if you say the right words, but a father is the one who knows you best and loves you most, and he won't just give you what you want, he will give you what he knows that you need. So you can think about it like this. God loves you so much. That when you ask him for something, he will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. So, when it comes to how God is able to raise the dead, it's not that hard. He's all powerful. For him, nothing is impossible nor even difficult. But the other question about what kind of bodies we will be raised with, Paul is going to give a more detailed answer now, starting in the second part of verse 36. So this brings us to the second part of our sentence. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 36. He says, "'What you sow does not come to life unless it dies.'" And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul says this. You want an example of how the resurrection works, what it's like? It's like a seed that's planted in the ground. When you bury a seed in the ground, that seed is destroyed, but it gives birth to something greater. And he says that's what it's like when a Christian dies. When you bury the body of a believer, it's like sowing a seed into the ground, which one day will come out of the earth as a transformed body in the resurrection. I want you to think about that next time you pass by the cemetery. You see those rows of gravestones. Think about them as seeds that have been planted and some of them are going to be springing up to new life in the resurrection. As sad as it is to bury a deceased loved one, imagine if you are planting a seed, a farmer who's sowing his seeds. He places those seeds in the ground, never to be seen again. And yet that farmer, he doesn't weep over the seeds as he plants them, right? He doesn't say, oh, my seeds. I'm never going to see them again. A tragedy, right? No, instead he sows those seeds in hope with eager expectation, knowing that those seeds, he will see them again, but in a different way. They'll be transformed into something much greater, much more glorious than as they went into the ground. He won't see them again, but from those seeds will come up a more glorious and infinitely better body, an infinitely greater life. See, that's what the death of a believer is like. Not a final tragic loss, but the sowing of a seed that will one day rise again in new and greater form. I love what George Herbert, the English poet, said. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him merely a gardener, right? Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him merely a gardener. Notice again what it says in verses 37 and 38. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. When you plant a wheat seed, for example, what grows up out of the ground isn't just another wheat seed. No, it's something which is different in form, and yet it's related to and comes from the seed that was planted. So we should expect the same thing when, with our resurrection bodies. The, the bodies we will have in the life that is to come, they will be different from, yet related to, our present earthly bodies. And that's an incredible thought actually because think about what this means for those who have lived this life with disabilities. Think about what it means for those who died in infancy or as young children or who died in old age when their bodies were breaking down. Think about those who have imbalances in the chemistry of their brain or who have chronic health problems. The promise and the hope of the resurrection is that you will receive a new body. And that new body will be related to and derived from your current body. It will come from it. But just as a stalk of wheat comes from the seed, it will be that much grander and more glorious. Guys, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that my resurrection body is going to have some pretty amazing hair, Okay. (laughs) You're you're really going to like it. I'm going to invest in some brushes. It's going to be so cool. All right, listen. There won't be a need for canes or walkers or eyeglasses. There won't be a need for medication or wheelchairs anymore. Look at what it says in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Our new bodies, which we will have in the resurrection, will be of a different form and more glorious than the bodies we have now. And now, then in the next few verses, verses 42 through 44, Paul is going to give us four ways in which our resurrection bodies, our new bodies, will be different. So way number one, he says, first of all, in verse 42, our current bodies are perishable. They die. They get sick. They they deteriorate. But our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. The second one, he says, our current bodies carry dishonor, right? There are functions which are not glorious, right? Which we hide and which we keep away from people for good reason. But our resurrected bodies will carry not dishonor, but glory. The third one is, our current bodies suffer weakness, but our new bodies will be filled with power. In verse 44, our current bodies are natural, but our new bodies will be spiritual. However, I want you to take note of this. It's really important to remember that when it says that our new bodies will be spiritual, that doesn't mean that they will be immaterial or non-physical. So when it says they will be spiritual, it doesn't mean that they won't be physical. In the Gospels, when we read about Jesus after his resurrection, we remember, as we talked about last week, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are raised from the grave to eternal life. What that means is he's the prototype. He's our first glimpse of what it will be like when we are resurrected to eternal life. So by looking at Jesus's resurrection body and what it was like, we can get some idea of what our resurrection bodies will be like. So for example, we read about Jesus that after his resurrection, uh, he had a physical body, right? He was able to eat food. People touched him. They put their hands in his wounds and felt them. He could walk into a room, though, without using the door. So so it was a physical body, and yet it had properties which are different than our physical bodies. So it was similar and yet different. You know, one of the questions people also often ask about heaven, they ask the question, will we recognize each other in heaven? Will I recognize other people? Well, here's the thing about Jesus. We read about how after Jesus was resurrected, people did recognize him, but oftentimes not right away. They did recognize him, but not right away. So he was himself, and yet he looked different enough from himself that even people who knew him very well met him, talked to him, and they didn't recognize him right away until they did. And as soon as they recognized him, they said, of course, that's who you are. Now I recognize you. You see, so although our resurrection bodies will be spiritual, it doesn't mean that they won't be physical. They won't be material bodies. They will be. In verses 44 through 49, then, Paul tells us that just as we have inherited our physical earthly bodies from Adam through natural birth, we will receive our new bodies through Jesus by spiritual birth, by being born again spiritually by faith in Jesus and what he did to save you. But think about what this means for you and me. If this is true, then death is not something That you need to fear. If this is true, then death is not something you need to fear. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. It says that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, in order to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How many of you know what it's like to be held captive by fear? Just like how a prisoner is restrained or held back by the bars of their jail cell or the walls of the prison yard. In the same way, fear can hold you back or keep you from doing things. And one of the greatest fears that holds people back is the fear of death. And do you realize the fear of death manifests itself in a couple of different ways. right? This fear of death, it's this idea that since there's only one life, Therefore, there's a fear of failure, for example. I can't mess this up. I've only got one life. For others, it's a fear of missing out. I've only got this one opportunity. I'm afraid of missing out on things. For others, it's a fear of taking risks because, again, what if I fail? But here's the thing. When you take hold of the promise of the resurrection and eternal life in Jesus, it fills you with an incredible amount of courage and confidence, not only to face death, but also courage and confidence to face anything that this life might throw at you or bring your way. The hope of the resurrection sets you free from the fear of failure. It gives you courage to step out in faith and take good godly risks because you understand that this life is merely a shadow of the true and greater life which is to come and which will last forever. So of course you can take some risks. Of course, you know what? You can step out in faith even if you fall. The hope of the resurrection sets you free from the fear of missing out because you understand that an eternity of joy and opportunity awaits you. This hope of the resurrection, you know what it does? It puts steel in your spine because you realize that there is nothing you need to fear, neither in life nor in death because of what Jesus did for you and who you are in him and what awaits you because of his resurrection. And that brings us to our final part, which is this. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death and gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. It gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So in other words, our fleshly, earthly bodies, these bodies we live in right now, they're not fit for eternity. We need new bodies, right? In order to live in eternity, we need those new resurrection bodies. But then that begs a question. You know, Jesus said that he could come back at any point. And so what about those of us who will be alive When Jesus returns, as he said that he would, what will happen to them? How will they get their resurrection bodies? That was the question people were wondering about. And Paul answers that question in verses 51 and 52. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when the trumpet will sound, And the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So, those of us who are alive when Jesus returns will be caught up and transformed into our new bodies without ever seeing death. And when that happens, when Jesus returns, it says, verse 54, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's mocking death. He's calling it out. He's quoting verses from Hosea and from Isaiah. He says, the sting of death, verse 56, is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, death itself, the passing from this temporal world into the realm of eternity, by itself is not something that's inherently bad or needs to be feared. The problem is, that there's a sting involved with death. The sting of death, that's what needs to be worried about. That's what we should be worried about. And the sting of death is sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what makes us subject to judgment. And the law, which is God's perfect standard of right and wrong, has only proven and solidified beyond any question or doubt that we have, in fact, all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we are deserving of judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, our sins have been removed. It's like the way that certain bees, right? You know about this. Certain bees, when they sting you, their stinger will stick in you Therefore, it will be removed from their body. And as the stinger is removed from the body of the bee, it causes the bee to die. Well, by taking our sins upon himself on the cross, it was as if Jesus was allowing death to sink its stinger into him instead of you. And in the process, as that stinger stuck in him, death was defeated, destroyed, stripped of its power to hurt you anymore in any way. And instead, if your hope is in Jesus, you can say along with the apostle Paul, for me now to live is Christ and to die is gain. Since now, rather than separating me from him, death will actually unite me to him. And rather than destroying you, death will merely plant you in the ground so you can be raised up to new, better bodies prepared for the life that is truly life. And so what does it mean for us now to live here and now in this life In light of these things, he says in verse 58. Everything he's been saying builds up to this one point in verse 58. He says this Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Rather than leading us to complacency, rather than filling us with an attitude of not caring about this world because we're going to escape this place anyway. No, 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 the hope of the resurrection should instead drive us to be actively doing the things right now which can only be done on this side of eternity. Did you know that? That there are actions which you can do now which will have an impact for all of eternity. In fact, there are some actions which you can do now which can only be done in this life and they can't be done on the other side of eternity. That gives us a sense of urgency, doesn't it? It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 9 where he said this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because night is coming when no one can work. What Jesus is saying is that there are some things that can only be done in this life and we've got a window right now that will not always be open. A short window of time in which to do these things which can only be done in this life. Think about it. You will have all of eternity, to worship God, to be with others in community. That'll be good, but it's only here on earth that you have the opportunity to share God's love and truth with others who don't know him or don't know that truth yet, so they can know him and be born again and receive this life that is truly life. It's only here on earth that you can act as the hands and feet of God in a hurting world to relieve suffering or to bring comfort to those who mourn. And you can be assured that when you step out and you do the work of the Lord by serving others in his name, your labor will not be in vain. So be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord as you await with eager expectation the life that is truly life. The hope of the resurrection fills us with courage to face life and death and gives direction and urgency to how we live here and now. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.